I mean, come on, no one plans to get sick. And yet, here we are. My name is Matthew Zachary. I survived cancer, a stroke, and COVID-19, and I'm still here. I also survived our broken healthcare system, and I want to help you survive it too. So let's go make healthcare suck less together, because we're all out of patience. Hello, friends. Welcome back. Another quick reminder that if you like the show, please leave me a rating or review on Apple Podcasts because I have a very frail ego and your validation matters. This special bonus episode of Out of Patience with a little segment we're calling Scrambled Eggs with returning champion Alice Creasy, cancer survivor, fertility activist, and founder and CEO of Med Answers. What triggered this conversation with Alice and I was a recent article in Ms. Magazine by cancer survivor Madison Chapman opening up a wormhole about the stupidity and ridiculousness surrounding fertility preservation, fertility rights, unnecessary obstacles that somehow still lie in the road nearly 45 years later when the science first began. Please note that if you are interested in fertility advocacy and what you're about to listen to either angers you or further angers you with what's already baked into you. Our partnership with Resolve, a nonprofit organization that's been on this show before, may just be the thing you're looking for to take action, join the movement, and give back. Let's jump down that rabbit hole and learn more right now. Enjoy the show. Welcome to this bonus episode of Out of Patience. I'm joined by my friend Alice Creasy, who you may know who's been on the show a few times. There was an article in Ms. Magazine called The Biden-Harris Administration Must Treat Fertility as a Matter of Reproductive Choice. This is something I've been caring about for a very long time, as has Alice, but I'm just confused, and I wanted her here on the show to teach me, the idiot, what this is all about so I can react to it and say, how is this a thing? And Jesus Christ, fuck me, what can we do? Go ahead. <laughs> Hi, Alice. <laughs> Welcome to the show. <laughs> Matthew, what a way to wake me up on a Friday afternoon when we're taping. Oh, you're hysterical. Uh, love to be here. You know how much I love talking to you and spouting off our opinions to one another. And I do have a lot to say about this article. The first thing I do want to say, though, is I'm glad that Ms. Magazine published this. It's a huge platform. It's progressive women's you know, health or women's platform, if, if you will. And we need media companies like that preaching the same thing that we've been preaching for 13 years, 15 years, 20 years, actually 45, I believe, because that's when IVF was first invented. And that's how long it hasn't been covered by insurance. Right. So the gist of this goes back to the early days of you and I being like advocates for if you get cancer in your fertile years, it shouldn't cost you money to be a biological mom or a dad one day. But this has now moved towards such a wider conversation beyond the fact that, hey, it's stupid. It's not covered in the first place. But why should you have to go through all this crap to be a mom or a dad when you should just be able to be a mom or a dad? Yeah, I mean, let's back up for a second and remember that the CDC, the World Health Organization, ASRM, and every other overarching global healthcare organization, every well-respected regulatory body recognize its infertility as a disease. So as healthcare in this country, do we just pick and choose which diseases we want to cover and which ones we don't? Should, should we cover my breast cancer, but not your brain cancer? 
Well, I mean, I got lucky because I had a brain in the first place. <laughs> I, this is the thing that's infuriating about it. So there, there are a couple of, of things that really piss me off. One, it's a disease. Two, not even specialty fertility consults are covered. Now, I can understand somebody making a case for treatment not being covered. I cannot fathom that there's any other specialty area of healthcare in which you are denied a consult so you have a proper diagnostic, a proper workup, and a proper multiple treatment paths that you could go down. That doesn't exist in, in orthopedics, in heart disease, in cancer oncology, in back care. I mean, if you have chronic pain, you get referred to the pain specialist and that's covered by insurance. I can't find any other area that you truly don't get to go see a specialist just for the consult. Wait, is this like an old white guy bullshit thing from like the 70s? Where did this come from? How did this originate? I think part of the origination is that these are laws that are state by state. And the, the hope of the ACA was this overarching federal legislation that would kind of shore up a lot of gaps that existed in, in state health insurance laws. Is that like a religious fundamentalist thing? Is no, this I a don't think so. I mean, yes, I do think that a lot of the pushback for, for the creation of embryos is religious in nature. Yes, because the destruction of embryos from a religious perspective is definitely against the Catholic church. <laughs> I mean, Vatican law very clearly states do everything. This is exactly what the law. I read the law as it relates to reproductive health. Vatican law says do everything you possibly can to procreate, but you can't have IVF. Right. That's fabulous. And it really is about their perception that life begins at the creation of the embryo rather than at, at baby's first breath in the world. Right, but if the creation of that embryo is in a lab versus in a uterus, does that vary? Does doesn't that... change anything okay. for them. No, it doesn't change anything for them. But what's interesting about the consult issue is that I started doing a research project with a regulatory law firm that I love. And state by state, when I started to look at telemedicine laws and telehealth laws across the country, fertility was being carved out as an exclusion. So everybody was touting last year, relaxing telemedicine laws, relaxing telehealth laws in states like New Jersey, it's a mandated state for IVF. They still had to shore up the telemedicine access for reproductive consults. But there are a lot of states that specifically carve it out as an exclusion that you can do every other specialty consult that you need to do, which originated, by the way, in rural America for oncology. Because patients needed a way to be able to check in with their oncologist. They'd go travel four hours for, for you know, infusions. And then in, in, in the weeks in between, they needed to be able to talk to their doctors. In the, in the vein of no stupid questions or how is this a thing, clearly this is not the first time we've been railing against the system for why isn't this covered by insurance. What has been the reason given as to why it has not been covered by insurance for this entire time? There, I don't I don't know that anybody's ever asked that question because I'm not sure who where the genesis is of sort of the exclusions for IVF and how they propagated across the country. In the same way that, you know, I co-authored the first fertility preservation bill with ASRM, I think in 2011, maybe in California, 
you know, that became model legislation that then got picked up by a lot of other different states. Well, the reverse happens in the wrong direction, right? When it's a bad law, it also gets picked up by states across the country as model legislation and, and other people start to do it. The the complaint that we most often hear when we're advocating for insurance coverage comes from the help from the payers themselves. And it's really about about money. And they say, like, oh, well, there's lots of good things that we want to be able to cover. And morally, we think we should, and ethically, we think we should, but at the end of the day, then who's going to pay for that expense? And they're they're saying that while we know, you know, that they have a CEO who just got a $10 million bonus. Bonus. And, you know, at the end of the day, we kind of have to ask ourselves, like, where do you stop the buck in capitalism? In a healthcare environment like that, where somebody, where it's ethical to let somebody have a ten million dollar bonus as a CEO of, of a payer, I mean, come on, <laughs> but, 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 but we, I mean, we don't take, we don't cure diseases. Let's be fair, Coach sucks. Okay, so I'm defending. I'm totally kidding. I'm not defending the guy. But for the cheap seats in the back, like you mentioned, ASRM a few times, that is the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. Would you consider them like the gold standard, like overlord watchers of protecting, making sure that good things happen? Uh, no, I would say that's resolve. I would say resolve the National Infertility Association is more the driver of advocacy, driver of change. ASRM has an advocacy arm that's incredibly supportive, trains, helps to train physicians and other clinical staff on how to be an advocate. But resolve for sure is is the, the, the largest, most prominent, most relentless, tireless, driver of, of advocacy change. ASRM is incredibly supportive, but ASRM's membership base is mostly representing physicians. And yes, they are the self-regulatory kind of watchdog. Um, you know, they publish guidelines, practice guidelines, they publish opinion pieces all the time. You know, they're part of the movement of, of people who are saying you have to offer pregnant women the, the COVID vaccine. There's nothing in science that, that would indicate it would be risk to a pregnant woman, but there's tons of evidence that shows COVID is, is a risk to pregnancy itself. So that's how I would, I would differentiate the two, but they work together on, on most of the advocacy issues. Yeah. And for the listeners, I did an interview on the show last season with Barb Kalura, the CEO of Resolve. I recommend everyone go back in the feed and check it out. It was a great show. I want to get back to this article clearly written by Madison Chapman on January 26th, 2021. We are recording this show in early February, a couple of weeks later. So wherein lies the beef that we're taking umbrage with? Well, there's a couple of things. I mean, Michelle Obama was first lady when the ACA was passed. And we found out years later that she herself, as an African-American woman, had two IVF babies. I need to have a conversation with that woman and say, did did it never come up that it should be part of the ACA? I mean, she herself must know the higher mortality rates for Black women, the the terrible access to all good healthcare, let alone IVF for African American women. So, how in that whole entire time period did it never come up that it could could have been added to the ACA at that point? That's one big question mark that I have. I think that, you know, the the author of this, uh, who's a cancer survivor herself, she she's one of our our peers, if you will, in our club that nobody wanted to be a part of. Correct. We're all happy that we're here because we love each other so much. <laughs> um, so I, you know, I love that she's raising awareness about a few things. You know, why why does the system sort of automatically discriminate against the LGBTQA plus community, right? 
it's automatically stacked against them. In the absence of an egg or a sperm, you need assisted reproduction. Because of the high cost of being able to form their families, they often kind of go underground. So there's these underground websites for picking a sperm donor, even for co-parenting. And they try to do things at home. And we don't know if they've even had STD screening on the donor. You know, there's all kinds of things. You know, they don't necessarily have the right legal documents in place to cover parentage laws. There's so many antiquated family parentage laws on the books anyway, because the, the law was really written kind of to your point of where did it start? The laws are written for, for white heterosexual married couples. And the media likes to talk about women are waiting longer and longer in life to have babies. We're not doing that on purpose. And that is not true across the country. I, you know, I run Fertility Answers. It's a community we have an app. We collect a lot of health data. We have an incredibly active Instagram community. What we see is a trend in for people in their 20s who are placing more value on family than marriage. Half our, our data set is unmarried couples trying to have a baby. Back with our guest after the break. seeing that as a social trend, at least in this country, where marriage is now like just another thing, but parenting is completely now getting separated from it. Yeah, it is. It totally is. I think that that is a complete societal trend. I would love to be in somebody's sociology class talking about that. It's been a massive shift too. Yeah. And also babies, having babies later in life, which puts the idea of like reproductive preservation and this whole process in in a more uh, sort of desirable accessible thing that people need to take advantage of when you're having kids at 40 instead of 20. Yeah. You know, but the thing is we don't want people to say on purpose, Hey, I don't want to have a kid till I'm 40. I mean, because then automatically after the age of 37, you could be facing age related infertility. We we're advocating for people to get a consult. I mean, first and foremost, get a consult as early as you possibly can. So you have all your options you know, the reality of of kind of egg freezing these days, not being experimental, you know, people seeing better success rates. If somebody's 35, though, and freezing her eggs, she has lower quality eggs. She just does. You know, I'd rather see 25 year olds doing it, but it's kind of hard to convince a 25 year old that they should be that proactive about their future. I would agree with that. That just seems to be the the natural course. Like we talk about how we have young women in their teens as minors who get cancer, and the last thing on their mind and their parents' mind is grandparenthood and parenthood, but those are the sure. moments to have those conversations. Yeah, sure. And I mean, we're, those were forced upon us because we had cancer. I mean, I think in everyday life, when you don't have kind of a pressing crisis, now, age, aging, does present itself as a crisis. Right. So women who are single, even men who are single, we're seeing a growing trend of, of single uh, men. Uh, having babies as well. Very expensive for them because they have to use a surrogate. And until you have that pressure, until you have that urgency, it is harder to make the fertility preservation, I think, you know, choice. And 
I, I wish that we could see even the average age of IVF go way down. I, here's the other really concerning thing about the field. Are in, in my data set, women aged 35 to 40 have been struggling to conceive for 38 months without having gone into a fertility consult. Is that just like the luck of the draw strategy? No. If you start talking to IVF doctors, they'll all tell you that everybody waits too long. In fact, when I, when I started opening my mouth about that, I was shocked to find out that it's more the norm than, than rare. And yet we keep saying, well, the definition of infertility is a woman under 35 who's been trying for 12 months, you know, without protection or women over 35 have been trying for six months. First of all, the definition of infertility is also incredibly infuriating because what it, it's, it's a time-based definition. If somebody has endometriosis, if she has PCOS, if she has blocked tubes, you know, those are physiological conditions, actual things that are very wrong, not working in the body and, and the cure, you know, to be able to have a family exists and we don't cover it. So that the whole idea of like, even, even considering infertility is only like this time-based thing is so false, even obesity, you know, I mean, everybody talks about the obesity epidemic, 60% of reproductive age people are overweight. 60%. And we don't talk about the connection between obesity and hormone imbalance for both men and women. One of the things that I disagreed with on the author, she kind of made, tried to make the case that, that black women have higher rates of obesity. You can't make, it's a racist statement. She doesn't know it's racist, but it is. BMI is the marker we use for obesity. And BMI, the use of BMI is racist in nature. Even the table that was created that we base kind of BMI understanding on was invented with male Caucasians in Europe. Oh, yeah. Clearly, that makes sense for everyone else on the planet. Exactly. It doesn't take into consideration your muscle mass. It doesn't take into consideration your bone mass. So even though it is widely used in the medical you know, arena... We do try to educate and counsel people on that. And, and actually, I was reading a PubMed article that, that stated that actually stated it completely different. Their research showed that white and Hispanic women had a 2.9% greater body fat percentage than Black women in a given BMI category. So I think that that was really important. However, I will say that, yes, weight itself, you know, if it is deriving hormone imbalance, for instance, estrogen gets stored in fat. The more fat you have, the more estrogen your body is retaining, which can throw everything off. And this is something that is a comorbidity with things like PCOS. Let's also look at inflammation with endometriosis. You know, that's something that is also not really addressed by the healthcare system. And people have to go and pay cash for even inflammatory marker testing because their insurance doesn't regularly cover it. And these things are all tied to fertility. They're all tied to fertility outcomes. And yet we have a declining population. So it's going to have an economic impact on the U.S. and the world if we don't start helping people have more babies. Well, and that leads me to my other question. So like, you know, consults are not covered. Who benefits the most, either profit or purpose, to guarantee that consults are covered. 
Is it like Pampers, Gerber, Loves? Like what companies would mm. give a shit about enacting policies that would make this affordable and accessible? It's Faring and Merck. Merck, Merck owns EMD Serono. It's, 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 it's the drug companies. They stand to make the most. Is there policy in this? And like, where are they at? I mean, this is not a show about like, hey, pharma, let's get this done. Like, they're aware of this. It's been many, many years. Is there any one simple thing to point to as to like, why is this not yet a thing? I'm trying to make it a thing. I mean, I'm opening my mouth. I haven't taken it on as a company, but I definitely have been in conversation with all the right people to see if it can become a thing this year. And, you know, what I, I've learned throughout all my years of, of legislative advocacy is that it is so much easier to solve one problem at a time than like the whole entire thing. So, right. as a, for instance, this author also referenced the Women's Health and Cancer Act, which ended up mandating the insurance coverage for breast reconstructive surgery. Well, they, they didn't have to mandate double mastectomies or single mastectomies plus reconstructive surgery which is kind of the consult plus treatment strategy. Right. You, know, you, you want to have one piece of the puzzle in place and then you start having, then you have a lot of data, right? Because then you have all the people who need a consult will get a consult. Now I have to tell you that the dark side of the IVF field is that there are providers out there who will say, don't send me a patient unless it's an IVF, it's going to convert to IVF. And the patients are saying, I don't want to go to IVF because I don't want them to, to an IVF consult. I don't want to be sold IVF. So we, because this system exists the way that it does, we have a real conundrum in that, that it's, it's like a cosmetic surgeon saying, don't send me any breast reconstruction cancer, you know, from cancer patients because I don't make as much money because that is covered by insurance. Right. And it's, it's unethical. You know, they, they spent a lot of years in training to become a specialist in their field. And if they don't offer the consult, if they don't do the full workup, if they don't truly assess the whole patient, then who is going to? That's tragically just like, I don't have a a, a, a gerund after tragically. That's just tragic in general. It's just tragic. Yeah. It's totally tragic. And I think it's disgusting. And I, you know, I keep saying to people, I just want them to practice medicine, you know, and, and the field became so driven by, I've, you know, the high prices of IVF, you know, look, I mean, <laughs> We support everybody accessing, you know, assisted reproductive technologies if that's what they need. I think there, there's other solutions that that we have partnered with that are up and coming, like microbiome solutions that have hold so much promise for millions of people whose fertility could be solved just by balancing the the, the gut. And we send people to Barbados if they can't afford U.S. prices because one of our users was quoted a fifty thousand dollar egg donor price here in the U.S. Egg donor cycles at Barbados IVF are 8,400. My God, this yes. country. All right, so I have another, I have a pivot question. So yeah. most women, I think it's fair to say, and this is based on, you know, I think our research and our recon in the nonprofit space for over a decade, most women or most men facing infertility for any one specific reason or the other are probably employed and their benefits are driven by their employer agreements, right? So- is there a way to weave in employer benefit shift change stuff that makes it a covered benefit to get a consult? Or is that just another rabbit hole within the other rabbit hole? Well, I'm about to tell you something that's going to blow your mind. I'm prepared. Go ahead. <laughs> so there's about 4 million live births that happen in the U.S. every year. Half are paid through Medicaid. 
Wow. In some years, it's up to 70%. So the first thing that's blowing your mind is the fact that no, not every woman that we would assume during our sort of prime working years has a job or has a job that pay, you know has enough hours from whatever job to even have employer insurance. Now, there are 30 million millennials that have that work for a small business employer. Those employers cannot afford the types of insurance that exists out there for IVF. So right now, payers don't pay. It's employers that pay. But it's large employers that can afford to pay. So you have Facebook, Apple, you know, big financial services companies, right? Uh, you know, Progeny is a publicly traded company now, two or three billion, you know, valuation. And they, and Win Fertility and Carrot, they've created these great benefit programs where they have a network and people can access them. And, and that's fantastic. Kind bodies going directly to employers and selling employers. But even if you sell me a direct cycle of IVF, if the average is, is three cycles, and I have one employee, that's $60,000 to a small business. That's a whole human. That's yes. a whole extra human. So one that could work, not an infant. And that that's just a value proposition that can't work for small and medium employers. It just can't. So, you know, we, we're innovating a solution. I'm not ready to announce it yet for the small and medium employer market to help kind of offset some of those exorbitant fees that they want to be able to have that type of benefit perk, if you will, to attract those really skilled, incredible millennial workforce and now Gen Z workforce. And right now they can't, you know, they can't compete against it. It's just the way that the system is set up. They're, they're priced out of it. So we started this conversation based on this article in Ms. Magazine from last month. Do you have any, I mean, we're going to link to it, obviously, in the description and all the social media promotions to that extent. So our listeners know with context what the hell we're talking about. But do you have any key takeaways from this? Is there like a, a response article waiting to be written? Like, wh what do we want people to do by reading this? That's a great question. You know, I think what I want is everyone to, to go to Resolve's website and sign up for Advocacy Day. And then Resolve.org, right? Yeah, resolve.org. And I think that that's the best action that we could take from reading this article is, you know, if, if you're somebody who read this article and you're infuriated by the thing that we've been infuriated about for years, you know, not, it's not just that cancer patients can't access fertility preservation. It's that, you know, we, we have, it's that transgender can't access it either. And in California, they can, but not in other states. And that anyone facing infertility or even a condition that that we know is going to leave them highly susceptible to infertility should be able to access a specialty healthcare consult. You know, if that fires you up, then go to Resolve's website and sign up for Advocacy Day. There's zero pressure. They do the most unbelievable training that you could possibly imagine to be an advocate and you you can be a quiet advocate. You can just be along for the ride to get the training and just be another, you know, voice or another sort of name on the list. You know, there's there's states that are super underrepresented, even even Hawaii. I have to say, here's here's the thing to Matthew. <laughs> These legislators are so uneducated about just biology. <laughs> I think that my seven-year-old has a better understanding of the human body than these legislators do. And so some of the things that I know that we need to do is educate state legislators. We need to have kind of education days and educational video content because I hear, I see the transcripts when 
a bill does come up and, and I, I'm, I'm just eye rolling at the types of questions and things that people just don't understand basic things like what an embryo is. They obviously don't play Minecraft and all those other games. All these kids know what embryos are these days just yeah, from gaming. That is true. That is true. <laughs> yeah. I mean, my, my God, this is the start of, I mean, this is not the start. This is the continuing, you know, I guess, turning pissed offness into advocacy for good, right? We're here totally. to make all of this suck a whole lot less. And the fundamental issue is if you can't get a consult, if you're not aware, like, where do you get this in your, this is a quality of life. This is a right to be a mom or a dad kind of conversation. I would encourage, again, everyone to read this article. We'll link to it. And, uh, our call to action. If you're listening, if you read this, if you're pissed, go to resolve.org and sign up for Advocacy Day. Alice and I are both working with Resolve for many, many years. It's a great organization. And uh, I, I want to keep this conversation going. Uh, Alice Creasy, one of my best friends in the whole world, fierce fucking cancer advocate warrior of doom, speaking of Minecraft, co-founder and CEO at MedAnswers. You can download the free Fertility Answers app on iOS and Android today. Love you, Matthew. That's all for today, folks. If you like today's show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, follow us on social, and tell all your friends to listen. Out of Patience with Matthew Zachary is a product of Offscript Media. Our executive producer is Matthew Zachary. Our senior producers are Brianna Seeley, Jen Orange, and Andrew McDowell. It is mixed and edited by Brianna Seeley. Our theme music is by the Mike Van Allen Quintet and by Mara. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscript.com. Hit us up at contact at offscript.com to share comments, feedback, and make recommendations. For more information, visit offscript.com.